Yeah, we have a lot of roots with a lot of you. Uh, see people that I grew up with, people that we went to church with, people that I worked at camp with, and it's all fast forward by like 15 years. So if, if I should recognize you and I don't, uh, we'll chalk that up to f- mental fatigue on my part. Um, so it's been good to be here. Uh, I did work at camp for two summers, grew up going to this camp, but it has been 17 years since we were last here. This is our family, the O'Toole family. I say this is my branch of the O'Toole family. Uh, Over in this region, there's a lot more O'Tooles as well. So if you see and hear other O'Tooles, if they don't look like this, don't hold me accountable for how they're acting, please. (laughs) Unless they're acting well, then I'll take credit. We have been in South Africa, we're completing our 12th year. Uh, a lot of people have asked us, where, what country in Africa? The country is South Africa. South Africa is the southernmost country on the continent of Africa. So we're way at the bottom. Uh, we are right in the middle of the country. So our landscape looks like western Kansas, very flat, grassland type of area. Um, it's 12 hours to the north. Uh, which is Zimbabwe. It's 12 hours to Cape Town in the southwest, and so we're smack in the middle of the country. We've been there for 12 years. The first seven years we spent uh, doing orphanage work, children's home work. We, we were privileged to be part of the establishment of two different children's homes. And in 2012, we were back here in the States, and we were at a Christian bookstore, and they were running a, a promotion that if you agreed to sign up to sponsor I think it was a compassion child, then you'd get 30% off your order for the day. And at the time, my wife was running our child sponsorship program at the children's home. So I'm very interested uh, just to see how this is, all, this is all happening. So we're standing in line, and the gentleman in front of us, and I apologize if you were that gentleman. I'm going to tell your story here. But uh, there's a gentleman in front of us, and the young girl, high school age girl, I'm sure she had just been told, asked the question uh, she says, would you like to sign up, sponsor a child, and receive 30% off your order? And he looks at her and he says, we've been sending money to Africa for generations. Why do they still need our money? That poor girl. I mean, what's she supposed to say, right? But I'm listening and I'm thinking, that's a really good question. Because it's true. It is true. We've been sending money to Africa for generations. And odds are, if you're familiar with a, a ministry, a mission work in Africa, odds are it's, a, it's an orphanage, which, which we had the privilege to be a part of and still uh, get to be um, involved with those kids. Orphanage, uh, clean water programs, school, that kind of thing. And the fact is, if we've been doing this for, for hundreds of years, in some cases, why... Why do we still need to do it? Why, as, as an atheist newspaper author wrote, why is Africa perpetually on life support? Well, that's, that's a big question, right? And we don't have time tonight to, to answer that question in, in totality. But, but is it possible that the way we've been doing missions needs to be adjusted a little bit? We've, we've been privileged, like I said, to be there for 12 years. When we first went there, uh, we went to, well, we've been in the same city. It's the city of, of Welcome, pronounced with a V, but it's spelled Welcome with a W, so it's the, it's the whole German pronunciation. But Welcome is a relatively new town. So at the end of World War II, they were doing a lot of mineral exploration to continue to finance the war. Um, and the Allies found gold 
in, on a farm, on a ranch in South Africa. There's no local population, but you know how, what happens when they find gold. Gold rush comes in. They began to develop the mines. Our area is known as the gold fields. At their peak, uh, there's about 35 mine shafts in our area. Um, if you look carefully here, that's the mine shaft right there. That's the headgear for the elevator. That go- there was a hole underneath that that goes about two miles down into the earth. We... When we first went, we went to, to renovate the offices for this mine into a children's home. At its peak, this was called the Mighty Number no. 4 shaft. It alone, out of 35 shafts, just this one shaft was producing 15% of the world's gold. So it's a very wealthy area, but as is true across the continent of Africa, the wealth doesn't stay to build Africa. Since there's no local population to draw from, they brought men and they put them in this barracks type of housing. They'd pack 10, 12 guys in a small room like this, and then women would come, and they'd provide services to these men. And you can imagine how quickly illness, disease would spread from one to the next to the next. And then these guys would go back to their homes and families across southern Africa, and they would spread, spread the diseases to their wives, to, to their villages, and that was really one of the catalysts that spread HIV and AIDS across southern Africa. Eventually, what would happen is they would, uh, around the towns, under the apartheid government in South Africa, which only ended in 1994, uh, they'd build a town, and the town was, was reserved for the white people. And then around the town, ghetto style, um, is uh, townships. So this is how a township would develop. They'd build, so people would just come in squatters and put up a, a shack. Eventually, the government would come in and plot out the land, and you might have to move your shack over a little bit to be on one of the plots. Um, and then over time, the government would, would develop sewer and water and everything. If you look in the background, you can see that's our town. I say our town is a small town. It's about 350,000 people in the town that we, that we serve in. But it's like a small town. So, Stephen, you're from Waverly-ish, right, outside Waverly. It's like if you took Waverly, a small Iowa town, 10,000 or so people, that kind of economy, but then surrounded it by 300,000 people living in shacks. This is what our, our city is like. Um, and what's, what's created because of this um, is created, click, haha, <laughs> there we go, It's created a culture of death. That was part of the, the issue when we first moved there. The orphan issue uh, was a big, a big problem. In the, in the early to mid-2000s, uh, the ARV, the treatment drugs, hadn't been widely distributed. When we were at the first orphanage, we got a phone call, um, a girl that was actually supposed to have come to us with her siblings that week um, before the social worker could get her to us. She, her mom, was, was in her last week of life. She looked at, at the situation. She saw that she had younger siblings, and she said, I can't handle it. Nine-year-old girl had gone and committed suicide in front of a train. I went to the funeral, and I was, I was helping at the funeral, and it was just, a, for me, a very vivid picture of of how life in South Africa with the culture of death that's developed because of the disease. On the one hand, we had two graves that had been filled that morning. We were filling a grave at the time. There was three or four empty graves, and then there was a crew of men just digging more graves on the other side. Uh, and that's, that's how it, it, it worked. When we were there, we, we were at the Pines, which is a children's home. I'll point at you, and you can advance the slide. There we go. We're at the Pines, which is a children's home. When we left the Pines, there was about 30 children. 
of those 30 children, uh, I think 17 of them were HIV positive. Uh, that was in 20, 2009 when we left the Pines. Uh, and then we had the privilege of working to build Restoring Hope Village. Um, and when we left Restoring Hope, there was, again, about 30 kids there. Only one of them was HIV positive. So in those, when we left Restoring Hope in, at the end of 2013, what had, what had happened is in that time, the distribution of the, of the treatment drugs and the education and everything had advanced to the point where the, uh, the death rate from HIV has plummeted, which is good news, right? The death rate from HIV has plummeted. But here's what we understand. HIV comes not primarily as a medical issue. It comes as a heart issue, does it not? And the, the fruits of HIV can only be eradicated when there's a heart transplant. And Chuck spoke about that this morning, uh, the need for a new heart. And here, the, the issue is, as we raise these children in a culture, while the death rate from HIV has gone down, the infection rate continues to climb. South Africa as a country is over 90% Christian, according to the census reports. Yet, as a country, we are the highest rape, murder, and violent assault uh, ranked first in, of any country in the world that's not a war zone. Now, how do you take those two statistics? How do you say that 90% of the, of the country professes to be Christian, yet we have the highest violent crime rate of anywhere in the world that's not a war zone? Well, clearly something's not, not right. Amen? There has to be a heart change, and talk is cheap. And we've been privileged. In 2014, God transitioned us from working uh, 24-7 orphan ministry uh, to working with a local church, working with a lot of young people in the community. And God's given us a really, really good crew of young people to work with. I'll share their stories uh, in a little bit. But this is our camp. And you might recognize that guy right there in the back of the picture. That was Pastor Chuck. He came to our camp last year in December. So our summer camp is in December because the whole equator element that, you know, changes the seasons and everything. And, and so Chuck came down as our keynote speaker. And I appreciate what you said this morning about how we all arrived here at camp. Um, but I'm here to tell you Chuck took a few liberties. And by a few, I mean the whole story that he told you was liberties. Um, because we arrived back in February... And I think it was March or April, Stephen called me and he said, so I'm the chairperson of Family Five and, and I've got Chuck lined up to be the speaker, the evening keynote speaker. And so now that I got my A-list speaker lined up, I'm looking for a B-list speaker and you are at the top of the B-listers, right? So, so that's, I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. He, he lined Chuck up first and he said, everything after Chuck, it doesn't matter, I can grab anybody off the streets. But we, we were privileged to have Chuck and, and his son, one of my best friends, Chad, uh, come over and help us with the camp. We had about 110 young people, and it was, it was a riot. Um, it was nearly actually a riot. When we arrived at camp, we found out that the, uh, we just rent the campgrounds, and the, the camp owner had rented it out to, uh, initially we were told it was a bunch of striking miners. Um, so we, we did nearly have a riot on our hands, but... Uh, Long story short, God provided, and it was actually the best week of camp we've, we've ever had. So praise God for that. It was exciting for me to have Chuck, Pastor Chuck, come because um, 
Many of you may or, or may not know this. He served in Carroll for how many years, Chuck? Six and a half years. And, and the church had just been planted, so, so he was following up right behind the church plant. You could say it was still a church plant at the time. And Chuck was going door to door, and he happened to knock on my parents' door and um, shared the gospel with them that night, and they were saved. And um, going door to door, how many of you have ever gone door to door? just knocking on doors, sharing the gospel. It's the worst, isn't it? Right? I mean, praise God for the people who are willing to do it. And, and really, all of us should be more willing. And honestly, it may, we, we could debate this, but it may uh, probably isn't the most effective means of evangelism. But praise God for Chuck. He was going door to door. He was, he was faithful in sharing the gospel. And he showed Doug's picture. And I praise God for Doug because Doug was faithful in, in witnessing to Chuck Chuck came to Christ. He was faithful, witness to my parents. And I'm going to ask my family and anyone else who maybe um, is a result of that one visit that Chuck made who, who accepted Christ, if you could raise your hands. So we, we sat down and counted one time because my mom comes from a very big family. She comes from a family of 14. And I believe 10 of her siblings have come to Christ. Um, they, of course, a lot of them have a lot of kids. And, and God is... God has been very good, very good to our family. And we sat down and counted one time, and it was over 500 people that had come to Christ as a result of that one visit. And uh, maybe, maybe God will bless me to be around long enough to see uh, some of the fruit of, of the work that, that he's done um, in my life and through my life. And, and Chuck, you've definitely been around a long time now very long time and 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 he got to come to South Africa and and these stories you're going to see are his spiritual great 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 grandchildren um, and this is this is what happens as, as he shared this morning when, when you're born again when you truly get the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel bears fruit does it not in Colossians chapter 1 Paul had never been to the city of Colossae to our knowledge and yet, he had an impact in planting that church. What we understand to be the case is that Paul administered in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there was a man named Epaphras. And Paul had, had led Epaphras to Christ and discipled him. And then Epaphras moves to Colossae. He plants a church in Colossae. Several years down the road, then Epaphras is visiting Paul in prison. There's uh, there's some false teaching that's attacking the church and Epaphras comes to Paul and he, he asks him, he approaches him and gets advice on the situation. So Paul pens the letter back to the church in Colossae. And so most of these people he never would have met. He, he would have just heard of their, of their reputation. But, but listen to what he says. He, he talks about how they had heard the gospel. And in verse six, he says, the gospel has come to you just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, just as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it in truth. And you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. He informed us of your love in the spirit. So here's what happened. Paul had led Epaphras to Christ. Epaphras was faithful, had gone to Colossae, had led others to Christ. And through their witness, 
They were leading people to Christ. This is what happens. This is the power of the gospel. This is the way it was designed. We can sit back and talk about Africa's problems. We can talk about economics. We can talk about medicine. We can talk about education. We can talk about government corruption. We can talk about all those things. But the fact of the matter is, when God set out to save the world, he had a plan. And he said, I'm going to give you exactly what you need to accomplish that mission to save the world. I'm going to give you everything you need. I'm going to give you my spirit. And that is true today as it was back then. We have the the same Holy Spirit of God living within us if we are born again. And that spirit of God ought to be causing us to overflow in witness to Jesus Christ. And when we overflow in witness to the gospel, Paul says, and do we believe it or do we not when Paul says the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing? Do we believe that? Then I have to look at my own life and ask, why is my witness so anemic? If I believe that every single time I speak the gospel, it will accomplish exactly what the Holy Spirit of God wanted it to accomplish, why am I so awful at doing it? Why are our churches so terrible at doing it? Why, uh, we've, we've had the privilege now of being in the States for the last six months. Uh, we leave back to South Africa two weeks from tomorrow. We're very excited to get back. Six months is a long time to be away from people that we love and, and people that God has given us to minister to. But we've had the chance to, to travel around, and we, we see the state of the church in the United States. And yes, some churches are growing and thriving in numbers, um, and other churches aren't. And I don't know what kind of church you're coming from, but, but the overwhelming sense that we keep hearing is this defeatist mentality coming from the Western church. Why do we feel so defeated if we understand that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing? We cannot lose. Do we understand that? We cannot possibly fail in the mission that God has given us. The only way we can fail is to not do it. Chuck is going to talk more about that later this week, so I'll get off my soapbox. But here's what's happened 2016, April of 2016, we had a youth event, and God has given us um, a very wide open door. There's a local public high school, public high school, that has us and several other pastors come in every Tuesday to teach Bible class at the public school. Fantastic opportunity, and most of the stories you're going to see or, or hear this week come from that. Um, and, and these two girls were in 10th grade, and one of our colleagues invited them to this youth rally. I'd never seen them before. I was, I was interested uh, when I saw new people, and so I went up and introduced myself, and we invited them to come to youth group and Bible study and church, and, and they started coming. Their names on the left is Jessica, on the right is Brittany. They're not sisters, although they look like sisters. They began to come to, to everything, and in June of, of 2016, um, Jessica's sister, Melanie. So Melanie is here. Melissa is this one right here. Melanie had been at university. Uh, The family ran out of money. She had to drop out, so she was back in our town. Our town has 83% unemployment. Uh, So she couldn't find a job. She had a lot of time on her hands. And so she and her best friend, Melissa, began to attend church and then Bible studies and youth group and everything. And within the next three months, all four of them had come to faith in Christ. 
In fact, Melissa had just been born again right before we met her um, at a grandmother's Pentecostal church. Uh, but then the other three, and, and Jessica and, and Melanie, their father had passed away when they were young. And, uh, and he, was, he was Mormon. They were part of a Mormon family. Um, and God saved them out of that, and, and they were wondrously born again. In fact, Brittany and Melanie, both of them came to Christ during uh, our song services, different Sundays, different songs, uh, but, but it was during the, so- the gospel infused into the song that, that opened their eyes, and they were both uh, born again uh, during different songs. And so we praise God for that. Then Melissa decided... She wanted to reach her friends. Uh, again, brand new Christians, just growing, just being discipled. And dare I say that some of us are, who have been saved for years were probably much better evangelists when we were younger, right? When our faith was younger. Why is that? Doesn't that seem like a problem? The more mature that, that we get in our faith, that somehow our witness is, is dulled, well, Melissa had just saved a couple of months. She decides she's going to try to reach her friends for Christ. So this is Kelly. Um, Kelly, uh, also from a, a very broken home. Her father had passed away when she was quite young. Her mother um, had a living boyfriend and, and just not a great situation. Uh, Kelly got invited to a sleepover with Melissa on a Friday night. Friday night's when we have our youth group. And so Melissa, she, she gets there and Melissa says, all right, get dressed. We're going to go to youth group. Kelly says, I am not going to church. Christians are weird. And she had rejected God. She had just turned away from him because a good God couldn't allow life to be so miserable, right? And so she, had, she wanted nothing to do with Christians. And Melissa says to her, fine, you can go home. So Kelly says, all right, I'll go to church. And she got to church and she found out that, yes, in fact, Christians are very weird, but not weird in the way that she was afraid we were going to be weird. And so she kept coming back, and three weeks later, she was born again after, after youth group on a, on a Friday night. So then she begins attending everything, church, Bible study, youth group, everything. And this is her older sister, Nicola. Nicola, um, by this time, had also rejected God, just full-blown atheist. Uh, how could a good God exist that would allow life to be so miserable? And so we would drop Kelly off. We, we transport everyone everywhere, and we'd drop Kelly off um, after, after Bible study, and Nicola would come out to open the gate, and we'd always talk to her. We'd, uh, we'd joke around with her, try to engage with her, and we'd invite her to come, invite her to come, and it took months, and finally, finally she gave in. I think we just guilt-tripped her enough, and she came to Bible study, and that was in June of 2017, she was a tough nut to crack. For the f- first time, she was confronted with the Word of God, something that challenged her worldview and, and, and the belief that, that there couldn't be a God. And, and it took a long time. Um, finally, in December of 2017, actually at our, at our youth camp, the speaker was preaching on Ephesians 1, on the greatness of our salvation in Christ. And, and for the first time, it struck her just how, how sinful she was and how far Christ had condescended to save her. And she was born again during one of the sessions at camp. So then they begin to witness to their family. This is their brother, Duncan. He has since made a profession of faith in Christ, and he was baptized last year right after our youth camp. And this is their grandma, um, who's also made a profession. In fact, she had been married to, a, to an Islamic guy, and when, when her 
granddaughters were sharing the gospel with, with her, she said, I've believed that for years, but because she'd been married to an Islamic guy and because of, of what he had done to her, because of her testimony, she had just kept it private all those years. Um, and so now she's, uh, she's begun attending church and Bible study as well. And then this guy, Jakim, Kelly had been dating him uh, before she was a believer. And he's from a Greek Orthodox background. Um, his mother was very protective, very... Uh, she, he says, my family is my big fat Greek wedding. That's, that's the way it is. Um, and she did not allow him to attend any, any church, any religious functions outside their church. But she didn't forbid him from continuing to date Kelly, who's a believer. Now here's Kelly, brand new Christian. Uh, she didn't know exactly what to say. She didn't have all the answers. She knew that she didn't have all the answers. So here's what she would do. She would come to Sunday morning services and she would take copious notes during the sermon. And then she would go to our, our older guy that recorded the sermons and she'd get the sermon recordings. And when she would get together with her boyfriend during the week, she would sit down with him and make him listen to the sermons and go over the Sunday notes. And in April of 2018, he was born again. That's how the gospel works. And I've shared these stories and, and it makes me stop and reconsider, you know, as a missionary, I'm going around raising support. I'm thinking, I mean, we kind of helped push that first domino over, but we didn't do the rest. I mean, we didn't do any of it. Let's face it. God did all that work, but, but people hearing this are probably sitting there thinking, why are we giving money to missionaries if, if this is all happening without the missionaries doing it? But this is what the gospel does. It bears fruit. And we've been privileged to be a part of that and to see that growth. Um, and, and there's dozens of other stories. Our favorite uh, ministry is on Thursday nights. We have we started it with with some of with eight of our key young people that that had been growing and, and developing. We started as a leadership training study, and so we started with eight, and it's grown to uh, twenty five to thirty young people every Thursday night in our home. Um, first, we have two hours of a pretty intense Bible study. Um, during that time, my wife is cooking and doing all the things to get ready. We have a fellowship meal after Bible study. And then we come back together just for some fun and games and fellowship. And, and there's many times where we don't even get back into the fellowship because the young people come back and they want to go back into the Bible study. And, and the coolest thing to me about this whole group, not one of those 30 young people is there because anybody made them come. There's a generation, and God is doing good things on the African continent, and there's a generation that we found that are tired of hearing, this is just the way we've done it. Uh, just do it because I'm the man of God and I say so. They want to know, and they have a, a high regard for the word of God, and they want to know why do we do what we do, and why do we believe what we believe. And so we've been very privileged to be a part of that ministry and working with these young people. I don't have time to tell you their story. I'm going to exercise some self-discipline. Bobby and Allison, though, fantastic story of how God has worked. Hopefully, I'll get to share their story later this week. Um, second aspect that takes up a lot of our time as missionaries is Makanyo Theological College. Uh, this is a, a local Bible college in South Africa, and um, it's turning church planting on its head is what it's doing. In the African context, um, most of the pastors, very few pastors can actually go to traditional campus-based education. Many of them are already married. They have families. A lot of them are living hand-to-mouth. It's, it's just not feasible for them to leave 
and, and go to a campus. But at the same time, a lot of the infrastructure for, for distance education does not exist. So what's happened with Macanio is they've hybridized distance education with local campuses. And what they're doing is, is they're getting um, people like myself who, who have a, a degree in theology in, in various areas. And right now they have over 60 groups across Southern Africa. And what we do is they send us the curriculum, and then we teach the curriculum. We, we run the courses, we grade, we mark, we disciple the, the pastors, we do all this stuff. So what's happening is local pastors are coming to us to be discipled. Our local pastor that we work with over there, Pastor Joshua, speaks at conferences for many of these rural pastors. And he's been, he's been in Malawi, in Zambia, in Botswana, um, all over the place. And these conferences... Anywhere from, from 10 to, in Nigeria, they had over 500 pastors. These are pastors. These are not average church members. These are people already leading congregations. And he says every conference that he's taught at, he's gotten a variation of this question where pastors are coming in and saying, we know that we're not teaching the truth, but we don't know what else to teach. Can you show us? What an awesome open door God has given us with these pastors. So when I say it's turned church planting on his head, here's what I mean. In the States, when you go to plant a church, here's what you do. You get a church planter, right? You identify a church planter or maybe a team. You get a core group together. You identify a location. You send them out. They've got to find a place to meet. They've got to do the groundwork. They've got to get their name out there. They've got to start inviting people, getting into people's lives. In Africa, this has already been done. We have pastors who already have locations, who already have congregations, who are meeting and preaching every Sunday. And unfortunately, in, in many cases, they're preaching falsehood. And in many cases, they're not false teachers. They just don't know what else to say. And they've never been trained on how to, to properly handle the word of God. According to Macanio's estimate, there's over 2 million pastors in sub-Saharan Africa. Less than 10% of them have any kind of theological training, formal or informal. In our group, we currently have 13 students. Eight of those 13 are right now serving as pastors of local congregations. It's been a huge blessing because we get to impact these men, and they're immediately putting it into practice where they are. This gentleman named Buisile, if you look closely, you can see some of the scarring on his face. Uh, he comes from a traditional African background. When he was born, um, his mom smashed a beer bottle and ground the end into his face to create the tribal markings. He was born again uh, at a Pentecostal rally when he was 18 years old, but never discipled. Went to university, got his degree in education, moved to our town to teach English at a local high school. And he was in our town for a few years, and he couldn't find a good local church. And as a brand new Christian, and again, this story is repeated all over the African continent. As a brand new Christian, he understood, I'm not meant to live the Christian life alone. It's not meant to be lived that way. And so undiscipled, untrained, he knew if I can't find a church that teaches the truth, I've got to start one. And so he just started going door to door. Knocking, and that's not safe in South Africa. You don't, you don't do that. Uh, but he knew that I, I've got to get the gospel out. He, the Lord led him to uh, a lady in our church. She said, that's what we teach at our church. You should come. He came. He was, he's been there for about three years now. And he was, um, he was being trained to, to become one of the elders at our church. And we were very excited. Amazing preacher. Really handles the word of God well. In the meantime, he was taking our theology classes. And a local church in, in one of our townships that is a, it's a false church. They teach false doctrine. Um, 
they decided that they were going to expand by splitting and having a new location, but they didn't have anybody to lead the new location. So they approached him and said, we, we know you're a good preacher. We want you to lead our church plant. Yeah, and, and he says, I don't believe what you believe. And they said, but we like the way you preach. <laughs> so he's been there for about a year and a half now. Um, I was talking to him before we came back, and about 25 people had come to Christ, which was about half the church. The other half of the church can't stand him. And they're trying to get rid of him. They're undermining him. They're attacking him. Um, so you can be in prayer for him. He is, he's in the lion's den. He's, he's on the front lines. But God has put him in a position to do this. And we've, we've been blessed to be part of several other um, church plants, which is crazy because we don't even have enough money to pay our own local pastor at our church there. Our church is broke. Um, but yet, a year and a half ago, he and I both together said, it's time for us to stop relying on, on Western missionaries to come and, and do this for us. It's time for us to plant a church. And we had no money. And in the next year, God gave us four church planting opportunities where we weren't responsible for the salary of the pastor. It was incredible. And so we've been privileged to be a part of that. Uh, Franz is one of the guys that's, that's taken over one of our church plants. Again, I wish I could tell you his whole backstory. And Albert um, and his wife there, again, he's, um, he's being trained to be one of the elders in our churches as well. And he's hoping to get into full-time ministry. And then this is my favorite, my favorite student, not Ernest. Ernest is one of the elders in our church, but his wife, Connie. Connie started when she was 60 years old, knowing that it's going to take her three to four years to finish her, her education, 60 years old, and knowing that in South Africa, they enforce a mandatory 65-year retirement age. She's a teacher at the local Catholic high school. And at the age of 60, she enrolled in theology courses so that when, when she finishes, she's going to be equipped for the next two years to reach her students for the gospel. Isn't that incredible? When so, as Chuck said, so many of us, we start to check out, we, or it was a Dave that said that, we start to think that, that we, we've done our part. We've contributed. She's, she has that meant. That's not part of her vocabulary. She's thinking, I've got two years left. I'm going to start training myself so, so I can reach my students for Christ. What a privilege for me as a missionary to be working with people that God is at work in. I didn't give her that attitude. That didn't come from me. For sure, that didn't come from me. But God is at work, and, and we're privileged to be a part of this. What's next? Well, part of the reason we had to come back to the States is to renew our visa. And praise God, many of you um, that have... Uh, known our ministry, have been praying. Our visa was renewed in July, and so we can go back. Uh, we're very excited about that because we have a life there. Three of our four kids were born there. They didn't want to come back uh, to the States. So that's, that's very interesting for us. It's still home in a way for, for Amber and me, but it's not for the kids. So we're all excited to get back and, and that we have three more years on our visa. Um, hopefully we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, we know that there's been some challenges. It's, it's very hard to be away. Um, and so we're going to try to reconnect with all the people that we've been missing out with the last several months. Continue. Um, we've got a, 
Currently, with just a diploma, we're rolling out a degree program with Makanyo, and so that's going to be a lot of work on my part. Um, and like I said, we have the, the pastor's conferences where we actually go out to rural areas um, and we'll, we'll gather local pastors and we'll do conferences with them to train them. Um, and then God has also put us in a place where we get to support local pastors and church plants. So that's an introduction to our ministry. It's, it's a privilege to be with you this week. Um, and uh, Stephen didn't know, but missionaries only have one sermon every four years. And so when you invited me to camp, I had to multiply all my sermons. So what I did is I just took one sermon and split it into four parts. So we'll just do that this week. Um, but we're very excited. Thank you for inviting us to be here. Uh, and thank you all for your prayers. And we will have an email sign-up sheet um, on the back table. It's not there now, but we'll get one. If you want to get our email updates and, and find out how things are going, uh, please sign up for that as well.